Okay, let's uh, think about a problem with prayer. Uh, and this is uh, the problem I'd like us to think about. I and mean, this is my example. The other day, um, I, I prayed with an unbelieving neighbour. He was in quite a bit of distress. Um, he was sure he wouldn't sleep because he was so worried about a particular thing. So as I prayed with him, I prayed really specifically that God would give him sleep that night. The next morning, I received a message which said, not surprisingly, I didn't sleep. <laughs> it, look, it, it wasn't a big prayer in many ways in the scope of things that we pray for. Uh, but yeah, I think that would have done so much good for that man to have had a good night's sleep in response to the prayer. It'd be a great opportunity for me to share with him about the goodness and the greatness of God. But God did not do what I asked. Wasn't I earnest enough in that prayer? Um, was I not expecting enough? Why doesn't it look like God isn't doing anything? Let's see if Acts 12 helps us. Uh, let's read uh, this passage of the Bible. Let's ask for God's help as we read the scriptures. Our God in heaven, we praise you. We praise you for your immense majesty. We praise you that the scriptures confirm what we have been singing, that you, God of heaven, in glorious splendor have condescended to come and dwell amongst a people like us. And that by your word you speak. Uh, we praise you that you're a God who communicates, who, who wants us to hear from you. So Lord, as we read this portion of scripture this evening, we pray that in your mighty mercy you would, you, you would open our hearts to, to, to engage with you. And not, not just to think thoughts about you, but to hear what you are speaking to us. And, and as we hear what you're saying, help us to respond and to engage with you. you know, we, we ask for your help very much to understand this passage of scripture. Amen. So Acts 12. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak round you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. 
When she recognised Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept, it, when she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarrelling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man! Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. This is God's word. Um, what are we going to make of it? Uh, when a ship is on the sea, seeking its um, safe entry into a harbour, uh, it looks for the harbour lights to guide it. Um, and I think this passage has something of that going on. There's a beam of harbour lights which guide our way through, and they come right at the end. That last verse I read, not quite the end of the chapter, verse 24. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. It's a huge guiding light. Now, in fact, Luke has, has sown this as a kind of seam into the book of Acts. He repeats it three times in the book. In chapter 6, verse 7, here in chapter 12, 24, and then in chapter 19, verse 20, three times. He, he makes this comment. And, and to feel the significance of what he writes here, we have to go all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the etc. Et God, God, God made everything in the beginning, didn't he? Genesis chapter 1, the pinnacle of creation, he made male and female in his image and his likeness, and he blessed them. And in Genesis 1, 28, said he blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. The creation mission, be fruitful, increase in number. That, that was that, that the whole of God's intention is that God created image bearers uh, to be mirrors of his glory and then he said, go and multiply, because I want the whole earth to be filled with image bearers, these mirrors reflecting the glory of God so that everywhere will shine out God's glory. As the prophet Habakkuk will say, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Uh, we know how the story goes, though. That image was shattered when sin entered the world. And instead of filling the world with glory, we filled the, earth with, the, uh, the world with, with ruin and mess. But God's plan continues. He has the same plan right from the beginning. And so in time, God himself came in the person of Jesus Christ, took all of our ruin, gave himself to be shattered under the death that we deserved um, under the wrath of God, and then rose again. And out of the wreckage um, emerged the resurrected man. And the offer that Jesus makes to all who believe is that they will be remade into his likeness. And the likeness of Jesus 
is that the Son is the image of the invisible God. We who believe in him are being recreated into that likeness. The the mirror has been reforged in the blood of Christ um, so that we might display the glory of God. This is so important for us to grasp. This is what God wants to do with the world. He wants the world to be full of his image bearers again. And so in Colossians 3, it says that we who believe in Christ have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. And then in Ephesians 4, it says the whole church is to be speaking truth in love so that the whole church grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. God's great redemption purposes are for individuals to become more like Jesus, for the church to grow more into the likeness of Christ so that we might live all together for the glory of God. What has that got to do with Acts? Well, that's the story of Acts, isn't it? Acts chapter 1, the risen Lord Jesus ascends up to glory uh, to send down the Spirit of God, the empowering presence of God to fill the church so the church might be sent out with the glad tidings of Christ to the ends of the earth. And as Luke tracks that progression, he weaves the seams of the creation mission into the book of Acts. The creation mission, be fruitful and increase in number. And Luke is telling us the gospel mission is that the word of God grows and increases. The same verbs that are used back in Genesis 1 are repeated here um, in these three times in the book of Acts. As Luke is plotting the advance of the gospel mission. Because the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And we have one of those scenes in our passage and it is a guiding light to understand what is going on. So let's hold that in mind and think about two things. Herod, he features in this passage, doesn't he? Good old Herod. Um, He is a good old Herod, actually. He's the grandson of Herod the Great, this one. Um, He was educated in Rome, educated alongside a number of people who would become emperor. He had some some pretty influential friends. Um, In AD 37, he was given power over southern Syria. AD 39, his kingdom was enlarged to include Galilee. AD 41, Claudius, now emperor, one of his old classmates, um, extends Herod's oversight to include Judea. AD 44, he dies. So our passage is between AD 41 and AD 44. Um, What kind of man was he? He was a pretty popular man, actually, Herod. One contemporary historian describes him like this. Uh, The king was by nature very beneficent and liberal in his gifts. He took delight in giving. He was not at all like the Herod who reigned before him, for that Herod was ill-natured and severe. But Agrippa, this Herod, his temper was mild and equally liberal to all men. He was humane to foreigners. He was in like manner rather of a gentle and compassionate temper. He was a nice guy. Don't see much of that in this passage, do we, really? Um, But he was a nice guy. He's pretty brutal here. Um, Pretty brutal. Let's want to see what he does. Verses 1 to 4. We're not really told why, but he starts to attack the church and he kills James, brother of John, and arrests Peter. And his plans seem fairly obvious that he wants to have Peter killed too. Uh, The reason is explained in verse 3, isn't it? Why he keeps on with this. He he sees that it meets the approval among the Jews. It's pleasing to the Jews what he's doing. Herod has a motivation that he's a people pleaser. He likes to please people. Uh, in verses 18 and 19, he's, he's made to look like a bit of a fool, really, when Peter is disappeared. Um, his plan to gain popularity backfires, so he orders the execution of the guards. Then in, in verses 20 to 23, there's, there's a, a 
political problem that he's kind of engaging with. Um, we're not given too much background, but th these regions of Tyre and Sidon, we're told, depend on Herod for their food supply. Now imagine if all the food supplied to your country um, came through Russia, for example, and President Putin was angry with you. That's the kind of situation um, that we have here. Uh, so these people managed to wrangle an audience with Herod. Uh, another historian records what happens. Uh, there's a big festival, apparently, to honour Caesar. Uh, and this historian said, On the second day of the shows, Agrippa put on a robe made of silver throughout, of quite wonderful weaving, and entered the theatre at break of day. Then the silver shone and glittered wonderfully as the sun's first rays fell on it, and its resplendence inspired a sort of fear and trembling in those who gazed at it. Imagine this sight, this, this king enters the stage and the sun hits his robe, which is made of silver, and he, he shines like the sun. And the crowd are desperate to appease him, and so they shout out, we're told, this is the voice of a god, not of a man. And Herod laps it up. Herod loves the praise of people. Uh, god doesn't love it, though. doesn't love what happens, and the angel of the Lord strikes him down, and he's eaten by worms, and he dies. And that other historian tells us this happened. He said he was struck down with abdominal pain, in the midst of this, um, this presentation, and five days later he died. It took him five days to rot as the worms ate him out. Um, pretty vile, isn't it? And Herod, that's Herod, in many ways a nice guy, but he wanted to please others, he wanted the praise of others, and that led him to destroy the innocent and defy God. How does the guiding light of verse 24 help us to think about Herod? Well, I think maybe two ways. Herod is a warning to us. Now, verse 24 shows us God's mission to the world. It hasn't changed since the very beginning. The earth will be filled with the glory of God. We are made and we are saved to glorify God. It's our greatest purpose. And yet our sinful natures resist it. Our old self kicks against it. And there are times when our hearts may be just like Herod's. No, we want to be nice, we want to be light, we want to be praised. And sometimes that comes at the expense of glorifying God. Now, we might not kill James with a sword in order to make people like us, but we could easily cut up someone's character with our tongue, mightn't we? It's easy to do, isn't it? I remember having lunch with this theologian once, and I wanted to impress him, and he asked about somebody that I knew, and so I suggested this person was a bit suspect in their theology. I didn't have any grounds for saying it, I just wanted to be liked. And afterwards was convicted and had to retract what I'd said. It's easy, isn't it, to, to try to make ourselves look good rather than to honour God. But the warning here is that God's purposes will not fail. Herod did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms. We are warned. If we don't give glory to God, he will get the glory one way or the other. And if we are convicted, we must repent. Herod is a warning also an encouragement. And again, verse 24 helps us. It helps us as we think about how Herod might be an encouragement to our mission. See, Herod attacks the church, and God allows it. Herod kills James, and God allows it. And you can think, why didn't God stop Herod sooner? Why did he choose to stop at that point and not that point? No, we don't know. You encouraged? 
Uh, it reminds me of when God said to Abraham in Genesis 15 that his descendants would have to wait 400 years before they got the promised land. And the reason was the sin of the Amorites hasn't yet reached its full measure. The Amorites were allowed to sin and to sin and to sin and to sin unchecked for 400 years because God's timing is not like our timing. God is patient. God gives space for repentance, but he will not hold back forever. Now, the havoc that Herod causes the church is awful, but it is not forever. The harm that Herod causes is allowed, but it's allowed for a time. It's put on a leash. Sooner or later, it will fail. And the reason for it is verse 24, isn't it? The word of the Lord, the word of God will grow and increase. God directs all the events, directs all the events to ensure that his purposes, his mission in the world will advance according to his perfect planning. And that should encourage us in our mission. Now, sometimes it looks like everything is against the advance of the gospel. And it looks like everything is against the safety of the church. But every attack on the church is on a leash. Sooner or later it will fail because God will achieve his purposes. Herod, he starts and he ends the chapter. But in the middle we have this wonderful rescue and a lot of prayer. Pretty dramatic, isn't it, this passage? James killed, Peter arrested. But because of the festival they kind of put things on hold. And so Peter is there in prison, guarded by four squads of four soldiers. It's a heavy-duty guard. And verse 6, see verse 6. The night before Peter is executed, he's sleeping. Got to love that, don't you? Sleeping. He's chained up. The next day he dies, and he's sleeping. An angel turns up. The chains fall off. Peter's told to get up and get dressed and walk out. He thinks he's dreaming. He thinks he's going to wake up next to the soldiers, but outside the prison, the angel leaves. Peter realises this is real. So, so he rushes to where he knows the church will gather. Mary's home, the mother of John Mark and, and Rhoda. You love that, don't you? He's knocking on the door and Rhoda comes, this servant girl. And she realises it's Peter and she's so happy that it's Peter, she forgets to open the door. And she rushes inside, she says, Peter's at the door. And they say, you're mad. And Peter's just knocking at the door. Eventually he goes in and everyone's amazed and he tells them the story and goes off to hide. Let's work our way through this. Go back to verse 5. Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Earnest prayer. Not, not casual prayer, not distracted prayer, not superficial prayer. The church is backing Back is against the wall. They're suffering this direct persecution. And when their back is against the wall, we find them on their knees. It's beautiful, isn't it? I wonder how often our prayers would be described as earnest. Maybe, maybe sometimes. No, I, I kind of hope if one of us was in prison awaiting execution, then our prayer might be earnest. But this earnest prayer is answered gloriously, isn't it? There's an angel, there's lights, there's chains falling off. Um, Peter's miraculously rescued from death because the church prayed earnestly. But it makes us wonder about ourselves, doesn't it? Wonder about our prayer. Now, maybe my prayer for my neighbour wasn't earnest enough. We don't see too many miraculous deliverances. Now, maybe we don't see too much answered prayer at all. I don't know. Maybe it's because our expectations are too low. Maybe we ask for things, but we don't think they could ever happen. Maybe if we just had a bit more faith in our prayer, then we might see a bit more answers. And maybe if we saw a few more answers, we might just pray a little bit more. 
And if we ever find ourselves thinking things like that, there are two things in our passage that throw a spanner in the works. Two spanners. First one, verse two, first spanner, Herod killed James. Uh, are we to conclude that the church did not pray for James? No, did, did they not care about James? Was Peter their favourite, so they prayed for Peter, but not for James? Are we to think their prayers for James weren't earnest, so God let James die, but they answered the prayers for Peter because they were earnest? No, not at all. That's the first spanner. Second spanner. I love this one, verse 15. Rhoda runs into a prayer meeting, and she says, this is what she says, the very thing that we are praying for, the, the exact thing that we are asking God for, is standing knocking at the door. The prayer has been answered. Peter's alive. Peter's been rescued. And they say, you're bonkers. They say, you're crazy. Let, let us get on with praying. We've got something important to pray about. Don't distract us with telling us that it's already happened. Now, th- th- this prayer meeting, there is zero expectation that their prayers would be answered. Don't you love that? Um, God answered their prayer, not because they really believed, or because they claimed what they prayed in faith. What's going on? Verse 24 is the guiding light. God is directing events to ensure his word grows and increases. God is directing all the events, including his allowing the death of James, including the prayers of the church, including the miraculous rescue of Peter, because he is growing his church. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us about heroes of the faith. It says some of them, some by faith were rescued from the sword, some by faith were killed by the sword. And then it concludes, God is using all of this and so much more to bring about his great purposes for the church. And that's what we see in Acts 12. God is directing events because he's growing his church. Now, now is that what the church was praying for? Did, Did they have the guiding light in mind as they came to their prayer meeting? We don't know. We don't know at all. Maybe the church is just praying for Peter because they knew he was in trouble and they loved him. They just poured out their hearts to God, not not praying because they've got some kind of strategy to get what they wanted, or or even knowing what they, or even praying for what they they, they thought would be best, but they just pray because their hearts are broken and they pour it out to God. It's a good way to pray, isn't it? And when the Lord Jesus taught us how to pray, there's a sense in which he wasn't just telling us how to pray, but telling us what all prayer is. All prayer is glorify your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And every request stands under that agenda. So so we might earnestly ask for his kingdom to come in all kinds of specific ways. And we want to do that. We want to connect our request to the scripture. But all the time we want to trust that he will answer according to what he knows is best to ensure the growth and the increase of his word. What about us? What is your praying like? Uh, Where do you struggle in prayer? Uh, I think this is a passage that encourages us in our prayers. And I think the major encouragement is this. Our prayers are often pretty wonky, aren't they? Uh, I don't know about you, maybe I'm just talking for myself, but often I feel most weak and most pathetic when I'm praying. And And I find myself thinking, what on earth am I doing? I don't know what to pray for. To be honest, I don't always care that much about what I'm praying for. I think, well, what's the point of it? And then sometimes when I really do get on and pray, and sometimes I pray earnestly, I find myself stopping and thinking, I've got no idea whether this is what will bring God's glory and his kingdom and his will on earth. I can't see all the ramifications and implications if what I prayed for were to happen. No, when I pray for my neighbor to sleep, I don't know if that would soften his heart to God or not. 
I don't know what would be the outworking of it. I'm going to pray for it, but yet I do want to trust that God will answer in the best possible way. What if our prayers are wonky? Now these believers in Acts 12, they might not have even been praying for Peter's release. I suspect they were, but they might not have been. What if they were praying with no expectation that God would do it? Even when the answer is knocking at the door, they think it's madness, and yet they prayed. And God took their wonky prayer and answered it to grow his kingdom. God does that for us, doesn't he? He takes our wonky prayers, straightens them out, answers them perfectly, so that his kingdom comes, his will is done, his name is glorified, and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now let's pray, and then we will sing. Our God in heaven, we praise you that your, your great redemptive kingdom purposes, planned since before the creation of the world, will continue through all the mess and muddle of our lives, right up to the new creation. And your timing will be perfect, and you will achieve everything you plan to do, and your word will increase and grow, and that the world will be truly filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Please encourage us in our prayer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.